Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. <laughs> Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 943. Uh, this episode is Judd Apatow, who uh, Jonah Ray is sitting right here with me in the intro and is also joined for the podcast. We're fresh off the Apatow. I'm, his, his glass of water is still right here. Do you think if I drink it, I'll get his powers? Yep, you'll absorb all of his powers. Oh, you're actually drinking it! I shouldn't. I didn't put my lips all the way on it. Oh my gosh. Then you made me self-conscious. Jonah, all of a sudden, I really want to work with you. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Shit. I didn't before, but oh, now... man. <laughs> You have this magnetism. This is great. <laughs> Why am I just only wearing a, a black polo shirt? <laughs> uh, so, uh, Judd is promoting the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. If you listen to the podcast that Judd was on, I don't know when, it was quite a while ago now. but um, A year and a half or something? It, yeah, it was right after Gary passed away, and, and Judd said he had all, these, had all of Gary's journals. Uh, and, you know, he knew that he had wanted to do something with it because there was a lot of incredible wisdom and philosophy and comedy process in there and he knew that gary would want that shared with the world and so he made a a two-part documentary series called the zen diaries of gary shandling which premieres march 26th on hbo it's a two two night uh, event it'll also be available on hbo go and hbo now jonah saw an early cut of it and said it is just fucking incredible it's really really great Uh, and you don't have to be into comedy to get it you don't have to even know who gary is but he is a legend yeah. uh, and, and died very suddenly and, and very tragically um, uh, a little while back. And yeah. so it, uh, it really is, you know, and I think also for Judd, part of the coping of, of losing Gary, who was a very dear friend of his, was, you know, living through this as well. So mm-hmm. um, it's amazing that he was able to share this and amazing that Gary journaled so much. And so uh, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Zen Diaries of Gary Shanley, March 26 and 27 on HBO and HBO Go and HBO Now. This episode, by the way, brought to you by Far Cry 5, available on March 27th on PS4, Xbox One, and PC. Far Cry Comes to America it is the latest installment of the award-winning franchise. Uh, welcome to Hope County, Montana. The idyllic place is home to a community of freedom-loving people and a fanatical doomsday cult known as the Project at Eden's Gate. You are the hero of the story in a thrilling world that hits back with every punch and where the places you discover are the locals you ally with will shape your story in ways you never see coming, Jonah. Nice. Uh, Do you get paid to do this stuff? No. pretty good. Okay, maybe I do. (laughs) Maybe sometimes I do. (laughs) Maybe sometimes this is, uh, this keeps the the rickety boat afloat that we call the ID10T podcast. And in celebration of the upcoming release, um, Nerdist, which I don't know if you're familiar with Nerdist, a company called Nerdist. That name, so familiar. It's like something from my past. So close, yet 
so far away. It's just but a shadow in the back of my mind. Like a ring of smoke that I can grab at, but it dissipates the second I reach. Uh, anyway, Nerdist produced a video featuring Dan Casey and Kyle. I like how we just drop a bit. I just dropped it. No, we, we, we do it. We commit to it just enough. Just enough. Yeah, because this us. isn't a television show. It doesn't yeah. have to go a certain length. They can, we can just get out whenever we want. It's rare that one of us stops and the other one goes, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> and but more beats. More, beats. more of that. <laughs> uh, Nerdist produced a video with Dan Casey and Kyle Hill taking on tasks and challenges that players can expect to face in Far Cry 5. Check out the video at Nerdist.com or YouTube.com slash Nerdist to watch them get trained in shooting, stunt driving, and attack dog handling. Uh, but Far Cry 5 available March 27th um, which is right around the corner from the time of this posting and thanks to them for sponsoring this episode of the ID10T podcast which is 943 with Judd Apatow Katie roll the Apatow initiating ID10T protocol Yeah, is one a bummer? It's just you know like what you do and like your dreams come true and a little bit of what Jim and Andy is about. Yeah. Also, you know this. Yeah. What it feels like to uh, you know get in the place where you have to do the work and you feel all this energy to succeed and you have to keep the quality up and the stress and the you know it's comedy is such a defense mechanism for us like we survive because we're succeeding and then suddenly we just feel nothing but stressed to, yeah. mm-hmm. to keep it going yes know? yes oh my god i would love to i would love to start talking about yeah. that yeah. very thing cuz uh uh i've been listening to this book this audio book uh called the subtle art of not giving a fuck <laughs> and it's really interesting and it and What's and that? it does yeah you can hold it or you can keep it in the stand turn it you can pace around. <laughs> you can you can pace around and go. What else is going on in the news? What else is going on in the news? But essentially, the idea is that if you accept the fact that everything is stressful, then you won't expect everything to be perfect, and mm-hmm. it will thereby essentially cut down the amount of stress you have because you just yes. know that that everything is is work. But but this idea of you know because I, I feel like. People are always prepared for failure. Yeah. They'll go, if I fail, what am yeah, I going to yeah. do? What's my fallback plan? What's yeah. it? But no one that I, I don't think commonly prepares for success, yeah. which is an entirely other set. And then and someone might go, well, fuck you if you're doing yeah. what you want. You got nothing to complain. Yeah. You know, but, but the pressure of either staying on top or maintaining yeah. or not fucking it up or whatever it is. So... Can can you just sort of just delve into that a little bit, either sure. through your own experiences or through what you experienced with Gary's diaries? Uh, well, you know, you know, Gary uh, was so fascinated by ego, success, the the need to be famous. The you know, he wrote on a piece of paper in one of his journals, uh, "If you're not on TV, you don't exist." And I, I think what he was writing about because he, he was writing it as a joke is that people think you don't exist if you're not on tv they think if you decide to take a few years off right. that you've dropped off the Ooh, face what of happened? the earth and they think you're insane for wanting that time or not needing 
constant success, constant productivity. Yeah. And what is interesting about the documentary, which is on the 26th and 27th on HBO, HBO at 8 o'clock, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandley, um, is about how you have, you know, like a kid from Arizona and his brother dies when he's a kid. He's 10 years old. His brother's 13. His mother becomes somewhat obsessed with him and smothers him and cares a little too much about him. He winds up in his room on his ham radio all day long and watching comedy. And comedy and his creativity is like the launch pad to get out of there. And then suddenly it becomes his definition of himself. And we all are like that. Like if I'm good and if I succeed, I have value. Right. And then you have to keep it up to keep your self-esteem because your self-esteem is on something artificial. Right. And and very and, fluid. Exactly. Like, so if this movie's bad, am I a piece of shit now? Right. Uh, and so Gary became fascinated by that issue. That's what the Larry Sanders show is about. It's about people who have big egos. And he would always say it's about people who love each other, but show business gets in the way. <laughs> And then he, you know, he created a character that I think he felt had all of his flaws. He didn't think he was Larry Sanders. He, he used to say, Larry Sanders and I are different because Larry Sanders couldn't write the Larry Sanders show. <laughs> <laughs> he had no distance from it, from it. But he certainly had a lot of his uh, issues with ego. And then – and so he, he, he was satirizing his flaws – but then as he got older, he thought, well, you know, who am I if I'm not a comedian? Who am I if you don't know me? And people thought he was bananas for not making more stuff and for not being obsessed with making stuff. And he found that funny. Like, I'm weird because I won't do more. <laughs> and and that is a, a lot of, uh, you know, what this documentary is about is his spiritual journey – so he he was trying to find a way to make comedy healthy. Like, what's the healthy way to make stuff? And he had a lot of reminders at the end of his life. Like, this is a gift, and it's a gift you should give selflessly to make people happy, to help people get through this difficult life. Right. And so he was trying to figure out how it wouldn't wouldn't be fucked up to be interested in creativity. So it's not about ego. It's just about the pure Give so just finding where is important to place the value in what you're doing. Yeah. And would, would you was he a pretty happy guy? You know, it's hard to say. A lot of people would say, "Oh, he was so neurotic. He must have been so unhappy." But I don't know. I mean, when I hung out with him, we always had a pretty good time, and he certainly <laughs> overthought everything, and 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 would get a little intense if he thought things wouldn't be good. Right. And this is something I've seen with all sorts of people, and I get this way too. When your self-esteem is locked in how good your work is, if it feels like the work's gonna gonna come out bad or someone else is screwing up or something's going wrong, you get angry because the failure of the work uh, is too important to you. Like right. there are people you feel like they feel like if this comes out bad, I will die. Right. Right. And there are other people who kind of don't care in the same way. I remember I met Ron Howard a long time ago and did some consulting on The Grinch. And he said, you know, I look at my career like it's a room filled with paintings. And every time I make a movie, I put a painting on the wall. And at the end of my life, I'll look at all the paintings and go, look at all this stuff I made. And I think it was his way of saying I didn't get nuts thinking each project was live or die. I would work at my hardest. 
but I wasn't going to emotionally fall apart right. for each project. Where I think Gary and other people uh, I've met, and me sometimes, it really feels like life or death. At the Larry Sanders show, you felt the energy like we are trying to do the greatest thing ever. We must, <laughs> we must not fail. And if you're not doing a good job, then you need to get out of here. And like it was a little too much. A little, it was a little too intense. But yet it came out great. And then what was it worth it? Was it worth the pain of it? Yeah, I don't know. Because, it, that, that, I mean, that's a very fundamental question of if he hadn't, if that hadn't been the process, maybe it wouldn't have been the same show. However, was it worth it? I don't know. I just remember my favorite thing is, you know, Anna Gasteyer had said that uh, when they would do a sketch, if it didn't go well, they'd walk off and Will Ferrell would just go, hey, we really stunk up the joint, huh? And yeah. then that was it. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my god, that's can you imagine that kind of freedom where yes. where yeah. you just like, oh, okay, well that yeah. one wasn't as great. That's fine. We'll just we'll get him next time. Like Norm Macdonald who seems to enjoy it as it falls apart. <laughs> like I used to watch him on Saturday Night Live and I remember him doing a sketch. I don't know if he was doing Charles Kuralt. Remember he was the old host of CBS Sunday Morning. It was like Hello, this is Charles Kuralt, and today we're going to look at someone who has the largest tinfoil ball in the world. And he was doing Charles Kuralt, and it, it slowly gets dirtier and dirtier <laughs> until he's like, it's a thing called uh, uh, masturbatory asphyxiation or something, <laughs> something to the words to that effect. Uh, and I don't know if it's that one or another one, but I remember Norm doing a desk piece like that, an update, and it not going well, and I could tell that norm was slowing down on purpose it just just, just lean turn it into the screws it. Yeah, on yeah. people lean yeah. it into it making you don't like it i'm gonna slow down right now well, that was like yeah. the, the saget roast where he was reading the what is the milton burl joke book or whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah. and the audience had no idea what he was doing and he just leaned into it yeah, harder right. and harder he and had harder. the best uh, defense mechanism for being on the dais too which was not paying attention because he was reading those sports pages so you know i don't know i mean i guess i guess different things work for different people but do you Obsess over each project, or do you have a pretty good? Are you? Or are you? Do you have a hall of paintings? Uh, philosophy? I've gotten better in terms of being crazy. <laughs> uh, where I used to yell at executives, and 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 uh, you know, when people would challenge me if I felt I was right, I, I would get emotional. And then at some point, I realized, oh, I'm turning the heads of the network into my divorcing parents <laughs> and I need their love and I feel abandoned and I don't feel like they they believe in my talent and I'm like I'm projecting everything into <laughs> these relationships and then I, 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 I stopped doing that but it took me a long time to notice that that's why if I said I want Seth Rogen to be the lead of undeclared that if they said we don't believe Seth Rogen's a star that I would have a complete meltdown because right. it was Obviously, they were wrong, but to me, it just questioned my essence, right. and my and then I would uh, I would let them feel how I felt. <laughs> well, that defined <laughs> yourself as the guy that knew about stuff and knew comedy and mm -hmm. all that. So when someone says like, maybe you don't, yeah, you know, but well, that's a real challenge to the ego too. Yeah. Right? like how dare you? But yeah. also, that's all I have in the world. Yeah. <laughs> I know this. I know this. <laughs> it takes so much energy to maintain that, though. 
that I imagine like once you have kids and once you have a family, yeah. once everyone's like, oh yeah, I can't. I'm just too tired. Sure. I can't. It's just not possible yeah. to keep that up. And my wife just going, what are you? What are you doing? She used to call it meltdown on the set because if something went wrong on the set and I just started running around the house freaking out because something was going wrong, she would go, meltdown on the set, (laughs) (laughs) which meant Judd's melting down. (laughs) And, you know, I needed to find a way to do my best and remove the emotion from it as much as as I was able to. But also when you find better partners, you know, when you have executives that get what you do, most of that is much more rare. I would imagine, too, in your case by now, people go, yeah, Judd probably knows what he's doing. We're going to not yeah, that's we'll a not big let deal. him in. We're not going to interfere. Because when everything is canceled and you, you keep failing to at least make people money, right. then they, they're allowed to doubt all of your choices. Right. So if, you've ever, if you have some hits, they, they, they want to tell their boss, well, of course I listen to him. He seems to know what he's doing. He's had some hits. Yeah. But when you've had no hits... People are like, well, why didn't you listen to Judd? He just finished that movie that made no money. <laughs> right, 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 right. Everyone just wants to not get fired. But yeah. but this is a good conversation, selfishly for me, because I'm doing a lot of stuff right now that I really enjoy, and I'm also more stressed than I think I've almost ever been in my life, yeah. to the point where I'm sure I'm driving my wife crazy. Sure. So, But is the stress the, just the daily production work? or is it Because like, I get the stress of... I don't have a script right now. <laughs> I don't have an idea right now. And that's a that's a different stress than I can't close the deal on the actor because they want too much. Right, yeah. yeah. You know. It's all that stuff. It's all, it's just there's like nine different projects and they all require maintenance all the time. And, oh, right. this didn't work out and that didn't work out and trying to get that performer for this thing. Their agent's being yeah. weird. and yeah. But we're friends. Why are they being weird? Uh, and isn't the, that the best? Oh, yeah. Negotiating <laughs> with friends. Well, negotiating with friends' agents. Because <laughs> yeah. you know, I have a couple of friends whose agents are not nice. Yeah. Not great. Yeah. Either they don't respond or they're just really mean and toxic. And, and I, I wonder, like, <laughs> should I tell my friend? But maybe that's not my place to do that. But if I were represented that way, I would want to know. Some people yeah. like that, though. They like to they have do. a dick. It's, yeah. fine to have a, it's fine to have an attack dog when it's called for, but not, not as time. a first resort. Yeah. Where you offer someone something, your agent's like, this is fucking insulting. You're like, wait, wait a minute. I'm just, what are you talking about? Yeah, that's a really hard uh, part of the business <laughs> that most people don't ever experience is the strange <laughs> dealing with your friend's agents. Yeah, yeah, and you want to be respectful and go through the proper channels. But, yeah. uh, you know, I just, it's, again, selfishly, and I apologize for, I, I don't want to make this whole podcast about me, but I just would love to know. How have you managed to maintain and how did Gary manage to maintain to not be so pulled into the undertow of, oh, my God, I got to do this and I got to do that. And that person needs this thing. And if we don't do this, it's all going to fall apart. Oh, my God, the sky's falling. Yeah. You know, that shit. Because it's not necessary and I know it's not necessary, but yeah. it doesn't stop me from doing it. <laughs> well, that, well, that did happen. I mean, that is, did happen. Um, you know, when we did the Larry Sanders show, there was a lot of turnover in writers you know, Gary found it very hard to find partners who got the joke or who were as great as he was. I mean, uh, you know, I always joke that you know, working with Gary is like, uh, you know, being in a band and you're the guitar player and like Gary's Jimmy Page. And what if you like have my, you know, my 15 year old daughter has never played the drums, played the drums. That's what he feels like <laughs> when a writer's not doing a good job. Right. It's like, so you're not keeping the beat. Right. And then he's losing his mind. 
Yeah. You know, like halfway through the Led Zeppelin concert, it's going to get weird. Right. And uh, <laughs> Even if the audience doesn't know, he can tell that a yeah. note was off. Yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, and so every year the writers would change. He'd have to train new writers. And the production didn't make any sense. We would shoot 17 pages of material a day. You know, most single camera shows shoot four, maybe six on a hard day. So imagine you're, you're the lead of the show. You're editing shows, and you have to act in it and memorize 17 pages, act them with Rip Torn, right? Yes. and celebrities are coming on, and someone's going, hey, can you read next week's script? And you're like, I don't have any time. And then you <laughs> finally read it, and it's terrible, and you're like, who's going to fix this? I, you know, I, you know, that's the question I was going to ask. Like when he was the anger because he was like, this falls on me now. Ultimately, it yeah. does. It does. And when I... The last season of the show, I, I came on and, and, and co-ran the show with the, the amazing Adam Resnick, mm-hmm. who's so funny. And uh, and I thought, you know, the best thing I can do is be such a good friend to Gary that the idea of rewriting the scripts is fun because he can do it with me. Yeah. So I, I just said, Gary... You know, you could have us all do it as a, together. Or, but if you and I go in this room right now, I bet you in like an hour we could fix half of it. Right. Or we could give much better direction to the staff. And so I tried to make milking his brain more fun. Right. And that actually made the season a little easier for the staff because uh, he wasn't as stressed out. And, you know, he knows the answers. You know, the show's so subjective that you could write a fantastic scene. And Gary could say, that scene doesn't work at all. But it's only in his mind. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like if Larry Gelbart's writing MASH and someone's like, here's a great Hawkeye scene. He's like, not to me. Right, right, <laughs> right. right. It's all subjective, ultimately. Right. Um, and it was, it was uh, you know, pretty stressful the whole way through. And sometimes you can't, you can't solve it except to be working on a, on a different show that has been set up better structurally. You know, sure. like Crashing works really well. Pete Holmes usually co-writes every episode the whole season. Mm-hmm. So he writes every episode. There's only eight. Sanders, there used to be 18. Jeez. Then it went to like 15 and then 13 and then down to 10 the last season. Uh, but eight's reasonable. Right. Pete can be deeply involved in eight. And Pete loves to write. He loves to sit home alone and write an episode by and himself. And it's his voice. Yeah. <laughs> and it's his voice. Gary didn't love to sit and write an episode alone. He liked to write with somebody. And he liked to rewrite people. So right there, it's tricky. You know, some people, some people love writing. Lena Dunham loves to write. If you said, Lena, we need another episode. Could you write one this weekend? She would just write one and you'd read it on Monday and go, Jesus Christ, this feels like she's been polishing this for 12 weeks. Uh, yeah, some people just work that way. Yeah. But how do you... Not um, me. Not me. I need, I need yeah. a few weeks. I need some table reads. I need some improv. Yeah. But how do you think you... Ca- how, how is it possible to care about your work... But not let it absorb you in an unhealthy way. In life. Yeah, because I, you know, some people are all or nothing, yeah. you know, but it, there has to be, like, what's the healthy approach to that? You know what's so funny is I just shot uh, Masterclass. Oh, you did one of those? Oh, I did one of those. Fantastic. So if you, people want a, a Masterclass. Is it for comedy directing or writing? It's for, yeah, it's for all of it. And it was great because Jay Roach. Was the one asking me questions, the, oh, know, the, the maker of Austin Powers and a zillion great things. Uh, and we talked a lot about 
how to make comedy, how to write comedy, all this stuff. Uh, it's on sale now. But we didn't talk about any of this. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like this, I just realized I should have talked about how to be a sane human being yeah. in your personal now's, life. Now's your chance. <laughs> now's, now's your chance. Uh, but, you know, some of it is just how much you take on. And some of it is how you set your hours and how you balance your time. And then it really comes down to uh, self-esteem. Do you have any self-esteem uh, separate from from the work? And then, you know, a lot of writing and creativity. It's like being Michael Jordan. It's like, how do I get into flow? Right. How do I get in the space where good shit happens? Sometimes it's like the people. I have two people I like to write with. And when I'm with them, shit happens and it's fun. Right. Uh, and so much of it to me is time management. How many weeks do we have to write a TV series? Mm-hmm. When should we start thinking about it? So if we're doing a Pete show and we're supposed to start writing in January, I'll say to Pete in October, let's start kicking around some ideas here and there. Mm-hmm. So when we get to the room, we already have about 25, 30 ideas before the room even jumps in. Right. But if we just check out, the room's much harder. Right. Yeah. And so some of it is anticipating time stress. Because, you know, it's hard to write comedy in a panic. <laughs> you, know, you know, like Gary would hate a script. He would do the funniest thing. He would, he would say, come to, my house, come to my house at noon and we'll work on it. Which meant we're going to rewrite the entire 36-page script in one night. Uh-huh. And then we're going to read it in the morning with the, the cast. Slowly, he would push what time that meeting would start. So maybe it used to be noon, then it became two, then it became four, then it became seven, Uh. which meant you were going to sit with him for three or four hours. Most of it, he would eat pizza and watch a basketball game. (laughs) And then maybe like from like 10 to 11.30, he finally would get focused and be kind of genius in explaining it. Expect you to go off and execute <laughs> all of it right. in script form. So then you might be up till three in the morning, maybe five in the morning. Right. And then you'd read it at the table. And regardless of how it went, good or bad, as soon as the table's over at 1030 in the morning, you have to do a massive rewrite. <laughs> and you are fried because you didn't sleep. Of course. And the week is starting. So you're starting from a position of... I got no gas in the tank. Right. So I feel like a lot of what I've been able to do as a producer is look at badly managed situations (laughs) and go, well, how can I set up Lena Dunham's show so that never happens? Right. And some of it is who's the lead person like Lena or Paul Rust on Love and how do they like to write? How can I create a system that doesn't cave their head in? Right, right, right. But I would say your main problem is that you said the number of projects – was nine. Well, that, I, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I just, that was just a random. That was just a random number. It's seventeen. You know, it just. Uh, I'm in the process of booking our music and comedy festival for the fall. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the main. And I'm renovating. I'm just finishing up renovations on a on a on a house. That's not stressful at all. And no. so, and not so this that, house. No, not this. Another house. house. No, no, no. Where's a, that a house? It's an Eagle Rock. Yes. Yeah. And what, are you moving? Nope. Nope. You have a double. Are you flipping? Not flipping. <laughs> You're going to have a, a house here. I'm gonna, I won't say the secret location here. He's going to summer in Eagle Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Just to get out of the city. Three miles is all you need, really. <coughs> you made me cough. <laughs> I mean, we can't summer here in East Hollywood. <laughs> it's simply dreadful in the spring. But it, but it's really, um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to just have a pla- like a nice, peaceful place yep. uh, to do podcasts. Yes. And to... 
you know, just to kind of have just to part of it was to protect a house from someone buying it and destroying it because it's historic. Oh wow! But but then I also thought like, oh, I could do podcasts there. And will you let your wife uh, go there um, occasionally? Yes. Well, no, it's a man estate. <laughs> <laughs> it's a man estate. Yeah. It's the extension of the man cave. Oh, yeah, it's much bigger. It's a, it's, a, it's a man cavern. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it's a really great space, though. And so, yeah, that, that, that's probably all it is. It's not – I mean, I think in general everything is very well balanced. And, you know, I, I work with good people. Yeah. And so I, I know what my strengths are. But I think it's, I think yeah. it's just that. So stuff. you need a, a Frank Lloyd Wright designed podcast studio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Something that feels uh, cold but historic. Yeah. 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 Well, sanity is uh, is uh, difficult. It's it's uh, that's why I, I love making this documentary because you know, Gary left behind thirty years of journals. So the journals start in nineteen seventy seven, right when he's quitting Welcome Back, Cotter. As a writer, actually, he was quitting a job working on the Harvey Corman show. Oh, oh wow. wow! And uh, <laughs> nerds get excited when you say Harvey Corman. <laughs> I love Harvey Corman. Oh, he was so funny. He was great. Yeah. And so, you know, Gary had just been in this car accident where he's right, like near the Beverly Hills Hotel. It's raining. He he, he hits the brakes and hits the car in front of him at a stop sign. He gets out to look at the damage. A car skids and hits his car from behind and crushes him between the two cars while he's looking at the damage. And so he goes to the hospital. He's brought in to have his gallbladder removed. He was very proud that he made a joke as he was being brought into this <laughs> life-saving surgery. And his joke was that he looked up to the doctor and said, just a little off the back. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, he was in a car accident, but then had his gallbladder removed? As part of his uh, damage. Oh. As part of dealing with the damage of this uh, getting crushed between two cars. Right. Uh, and so he said that he rose above his body. He walked, he walked to the light. Everything you think about, he's like, that's exactly what happened. And then he heard a voice, and the voice said, do you want to continue living Gary Chandling's life? And he said yes. And then he went back into his body. He said he remembered everything that the surgeons were saying during the operation, and that he always knew that there was more to this life than what we all know. And that gave him the courage to uh, stop writing on sitcoms and commit to uh, a career as a comedian because mm-hmm. he was doing much better. He wasn't doing well as a comedian, but he was uh, began to write for shows like Sanford and Son and Three's Company. And then, uh, you know, that gave him a sense that there was more to this life, and he always tried to apply it, but yet struggled. Like if you've ever seen the George Harrison documentary, they talk a lot about how people think of him as the mellow beetle, but actually he was like the angriest beetle. That's why he was into Buddhism and Eastern philosophies. It's like, oh wow, I didn't know he that. was so he was so troubled that he needed it. Uh, and Sarah Silverman says that in the documentary that Gary wasn't Zen; he needed Zen. Uh, and that's what's fascinating is is you know reading these journals from 1977 as he tries to figure out how to be funny, and then he tries to get gigs, then he tries to get respect, and then he tries to get on the Tonight Show, and then he. He's hosting the Tonight Show, and then you see emotionally how is he, you know, uh, finding happiness? Where is his spirituality as he's having success? And then having fights with people and, 
you know, fighting with Mike Nichols when they're making what planet are you from and they don't get along at all and it's coming out terrible. And how does he use his belief in Buddhism to to attempt to be happy or at least not unhappy? Right. Did that start after the accident, his his meditation and his Buddhism, or was, was he already kind of doing that before? Well, there was a funny story that, you know, when he was a kid, his brother had a pen pal from Japan. So this is around, you know, 1958, 59. So Japan uh, what's that? A Japan, a Japan pal. pal. Uh, and, uh, Thanks, Joe. <laughs> and, and then when his brother died, he took over being pen pals with him. And then at some point, the guy moved in with them for a year while he went to college. Oh, that's right. That's in, that's in the first part of the doc. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he... Uh, so I think he might have discovered Eastern thought and Buddhism from this man. Uh, and... There were pictures of him as a kid, like, and I just noticed there's like a Buddha on the kitchen counter, mm-hmm. which is pretty wild for 1960 Arizona. Yeah, you know, it, it really hadn't come here in, in the, the way it is now. Um, and so Gary always talked about non-attachment. How can you not want anything? You know, how can you do your work but not want? Right. Yeah. You know how how can you? You know, it's like the idea of like getting rid of desire. Because all pain comes from wanting something, is, right? Is of the course. philosophy, and but can you be creative? Can you pursue a career and a relationship while trying to be non-attached? And I guess that's the, I guess they call it the middle path. Can you walk the middle path? Because all the pain is, it's not going to work out. You motherfuckers! Yes, <laughs> and there's that path. And there's the, eh, and you never get off the yeah. couch path. Yeah. And can you still kick ass while being eh? And so Gary would write in his journals, and it's fascinating. He must have been really into Zen and the art of archery and books like that, where he's talking about going on The Tonight Show. So can you imagine he's a comedian? He feels like he's going to sit down next to Johnny soon. That's the next step. And he's writing in his journal how to prepare for that. And he's like, you must believe that you deserve to be there. You have prepared your whole life. And when Johnny asks you a question... The comedy will come if you let go. And he said he called it the simultaneous performance and non-performance. Hmm. So both concentrating and completely letting That's go. That's crazy yeah. that he was preparing for spontaneity in a weird sort of way. Absolutely. That yeah. he rather, which I actually really understand as opposed to just showing up. And you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I guess I might, oh, maybe I'll riff or maybe I won't. But just knowing, like, I'm, I am preparing to let it go. Sure. Which, is, which makes a ton of sense to me. Because at least yeah. you know what mindset that you're going to be in when you get there. And I assume that improv people and Second City people and UCB people on some level are learning how to believe in themselves. Yeah. Right. Uh, but, but I think part of it is that applies not just to being on The Tonight Show. It applies to your entire life. Right. Can you be in the moment? Can you be spontaneous? while not wanting anything and just living in some sort of peace that sometimes is joy and it's so hard. It is because <laughs> it's, very, it's, very, it's very counterintuitive and maybe this yeah. is to our egos, but it's counterintuitive to, to think because your ego goes, well, I need stuff and I want stuff. Yeah. And so if you tell it, well, I'm not going to try for anything. And I go, well, how, how are you going to get anything? Isn't that Yoda's thing, like, first no try? Isn't yeah, that, yeah. yeah. Do, do or do not, there is no try. And I, and I think that's you know, part of it. And it's so weird because we live in a country now with a president that his whole philosophy is 
about revenge. I mean, it's the opposite of everything. It's like, yeah. if you cross me, I will attack you 10 times harder. Right. He actually said once, Trump, uh, I will attack you 10 times harder because it will make you not do it again. And it will scare other people off from doing it to me. And I will enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I say. You got to respect the honesty there. <laughs> At least it's honest, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. It, it, yeah. There, there are some people, though, that are like that, where you, you want to say to them, like, would you just admit that you enjoy hurting people? Yeah, would you yeah. at least just admit yeah. it? Yeah. You he just does. say that. Just he does say that admit you it. enjoy it. He does admit it. But it's, it is the opposite of what everything Gary was talking about in terms of making your life about giving and kindness and love and trying to figure out why you don't connect with people. And if you could relax enough and drop your ego enough, you would realize how connected people are. I think you, I think the last time you were on, I think Gary had just died. Yes. Yes. We talked about some of this. And, and you had just said you had the journals and you were trying to figure out what to do with them. Yeah. Um, and so first of all, how are you doing Mm. with it all now that you have, you know, another year of, of perspective? I, I'm just, you know, unleashing this documentary on Earth. So, in a way, it's the end of a like a two-year grieving process because instead of learning to let go, I just listen to every uh, podcast and watch every Tonight Show and looked at everything he ever did for two years and, and looked at it like Gary would want me to think that there was a lesson in this. And so I will try to learn the lesson and the documentary is telling other people what the lesson is and he would want he would want people to know what the lesson i think so he you know he went on comedians and cars uh, getting coffee it was one of the last things that he did and i feel like that was the beginning of where where he wanted to take what he was doing he talked about his spirituality and and he found a way to be funny uh, and and expressing these ideas, so I I feel like the documentary is everything Gary would want people he was about to do to, anyway, yeah. to know about him and to think about because I think he was worried about the world and he was worried that that people were you know divided and and kind of stuck in their own heads. You you got the chance to watch an yeah. early cut. Yeah, I, it's uh, it's it's something that I think uh, my, my wife and I said the same thing. I think a lot of people. It's like this is something that I think people will, will return to a bunch watching it because it's not only a great story about you know gary shandling but also just like all of his thoughts and ideas on things uh really truly are something to kind of uh think about and yeah. kind of hold like uh you know it's a, it's very important the things he brought up to just always kind of have in your head and it, like it made me it's you know it was like to watch that after like a crazy couple of years like i had it was you know i was like the, the documentary was like two minutes in. I was already tearing up. Yeah, it's a, it's a really it's beautifully made and um, and it's a, I think it's going to be kind of less a documentary on some comic that you know people might or might not know because yeah. you know because because he hasn't done anything in a long time. There are like a, there's a you know a chunk of people that might not know who he is, but I still think it's one of those really good documentaries where it doesn't matter if yeah. you know who this person is person is it's because it's like the things they're talking about the things they were trying to do are important and transcend entertainment and comedy well what a rare gift though that he was so contemplative and documented all of it Mm -hmm. because how many people go through that journey and we understand anything about who they really were and what Mm -hmm. they were thinking every step along the way and how they evolved i mean that's it, it takes away so much mystery from like you know the idea of just you know 
just an unabashed comedy genius, which he was. But like you get to see that he had self doubts and he had and just seeing the way you know he he journaled. It was in like and I didn't see all of them, but like a lot of the stuff you have in there, they're like a lot of them are in spurts. Yeah, they're just these kind of like little ideas that or lines or things that he thinks and he just kind of writes them down and it's a uh, it's uh, it's it's interesting to see that's how his mind worked in these little bursts of you know thought i mean it's about comedy and creativity but it's really about a man and a life and a friend of mine i thought it was the best compliment i got on the documentary he said i felt like it was about my life and i'm not in comedy i felt like i'm on this same exact journey he just happens to be a comic right and when the movie ends it's a little bit like a trojan horse which is you're interested in this guy who's funny in these shows, and and then by the end of it, you realize that it's about something else. It's it's about how we choose to live our lives, what what we make of this human experience, and uh, and some of these ideas that Gary used, which you know led him to ultimately think the, the he wrote this in, a, in his journal uh, that he wanted to give more. That's the win. And that's it. You know, and you could boil the whole thing down to that. Give more, that's the win. Basically, th- through Gary, Judd has made comedy Dianetics. <laughs> <laughs> I've had some real estates. So you see, you have to, the cover just has to be Gary's mouth with a volcano yeah. uh, lava flow yes. spewing out of it. I think that'd be, that'd be really great. You've got to release the Shanlings. Comedetics. You know? I've got some uh, cast members from TAPS are going to be a part of it. <laughs> <laughs> you got Tim Hutton in there. Exactly. You got a Tim Hutton. You got... They're all there. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's what's exciting about having it come out. And then I'll have a nervous breakdown personally hmm. from the end of the process. But I did try to look at it like Gary always, Gary's always tried to teach me stuff. When, you know, when I got hired at the Larry Sanders show, he didn't say you're going to do a good job. He said you're going to learn a lot. And yeah. that is a lot of what our relationship was. And I, you know, I, I went to his uh, uh, cremation. You know, that's, that's a really heavy thing to be a part of. And it all became very clear, like, you know, there's this life and there's what we learn from it and what we take from it and that it's all a lesson and that Gary would want us to learn from everything he went through. Like if anyone's life could be any better because of anything he went through, that's what Gary would want. That's what I took from, you know, being at the cremation. So, I mean, that's... I didn't know you could go to a cremation. Yeah, I didn't know either. They didn't so, give me the option. You got to know a guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I wasn't invited. Guy, I wasn't invited. The guy I thought you were just there peeking in through the window. Yeah, yeah. Just, they put on an orderly outfit, yeah, yeah. like a white thing, and then yeah. just, yeah. just stand there. It's like, hmm, real hot in here. I mean, is, is it? Is it? You, you go, and then they put the body in and burn it, and then... What's in a box, right? Well, um, yes. His friend put together a beautiful ceremony, and there were some Buddhist monks there. But the place isn't built for that. It's literally like being in you know, in the back of a TGI Fridays in the kitchen. You know, right. It's not yeah. set up for services, but they, they had some, some people uh, praying and, and, and talking about Gary. But ultimately, you know, they cremate him and you're you're in a room uh which is industrial and suddenly they hit a button and the room gets hot and the room suddenly smells of smoke and you feel it in your chest and you realize gary is in me right now i this i am breathing gary and it's very it's very moving and very powerful and it's clarifying it, it, you just go, all right, well, 
I need to be nicer to the next person I encounter. That's that's what this is. There's a Buddhist saying where they say, you know, um, you know, it, when you're in love with somebody uh, and you're in a fight, when you hug them, imagine where you both will be in 300 years. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what the cremation <laughs> felt like. Okay. Yeah. So it, it reminded me a lot of Harold Ramis, who I was friends with, who was similar to Gary in his interest in Buddhism, who used to say, uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't believe in God. And he said, but when you don't believe in God, you have a choice to make. I can be a good guy or a bad guy. It's up to me. And I'd rather be a good guy. That's it. Yeah. You know, I'd rather be a good guy. And, uh, and that is what that moment was like also. Oh, okay, I get it. We're here. Let's yeah. just be good to each other. But yeah. there's also but there's also so much about legacy and not just the physical things that you pass on, that you pass down to the world, but also you know, the experiences and the lessons which I think really have the most value yeah. to people if they're willing to listen. Sure. Because that I mean, that's really all we have, ultimately. Yeah. I mean, like, buildings can rise and fall. You can have all the money in the world and then zero money. Or you can have, you know, but but what is eternal is sort of the 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 knowledge that we are able to push down through yes. the generations and through time that, yeah. you know, that, that will ultimately survive. And that's what Gary, you know, was interested in, being a mentor. And Sarah Silverman talks about it in the documentary. She, you know, she talks about, it, you know, the Gary effect, like the butterfly effect of how many people he taught, an approach to creativity, you know, truth in your work and digging you know, deep uh, to the core of yourself and characters in the work, which he learned from this acting coach named Roy London and how many writers, uh, you know, were inspired by that. Paul Sims, you know, who ran the show in the second season, he worked on divorce and he created news radio and he's the, one of the head guys on Atlanta. And, you know, he, he was a, someone giving a lot of uh, advice to people like Sasha Baron Cohen and, Pete Berg and Sarah and and me and everything I do I think oh this is all because of Gary. Hmm. I used to I used to think while we were writing Freaks and Geeks episodes, what would Gary do here? And then I would imagine that Freaks and Geeks was an episode of the Larry Sanders show, and I would try to apply the same you know uh, rules to it. I, I really thought like, oh, Martin Starr is uh, related to one of these people on Larry Sanders. Okay, what's this, what's <laughs> yeah. the scene feel like? What's the level of truth? Why would it be funny like a bunch of kids talking about how girls don't like them? Right. And 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 in my mentorship of writers and producing, I think yeah, that's just from Roy to Gary, you know, to me to Seth or Kamel to whoever they're with. You know, that's the beauty of all that. And how did this? Because now you're very much your own entity, mm -hmm. and so how, who, who are you now? Do you think like what 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 do you think your strengths are? What do you think your weaknesses are now that you've you know because you, you when you start out you you're kind of emulating yeah. other people taking lessons, but at a certain point you really do kind of form your own identity. Yeah. So do you think you're there yet, or do you still think oh I still got a ton to learn, or like wh where do you think you're at? I don't know. I'm generally pretty tough on myself. Uh, like, for instance, this documentary is getting amazing reaction, but I feel like it's scary. I'm just assembling 
the greatness of Gary. But you could I'm, have assembled it in a bad way, though. No, it's, yeah. it's a really well done yeah. documentary. Or I'll just think, uh, you know, my my editor Joe Beshinkovsky, who did Jane about Jane Goodall, he also edited the Kurt Cobain. Movie. Oh, wow. I think. Well, Joe did a good job. Like it's hard for me. <laughs> it's hard for me to think I was a part of it in any way. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I had to work to 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 own any of it uh, because that's just how I've always been, and and that served me in a way. I've always it's not like it's not humble, but my my low self esteem keeps me working hard. I never rest on my laurels. I'm never happy enough to. Get weird and and cocky. I, I've always been aware that if you make a good movie, there's nothing about the experience of a hit movie that will make the next movie successful. Right. It's it's just an experiment. You 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 can be uh, Spielberg and make uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and then next up. 1941. <laughs> <laughs> Which on paper it should work. You got yeah. Belushi. Yeah. You know, like every all the elements are in place. Yeah, it's you know? it just. Uh, I went and saw that in LA at the Motion Picture Academy when I was, I believe, 12 years old, and in the audience, and I got his autograph, Phil Silvers. What? Uh, at Michael York. Oh my! And God. Rene Abelchawan. Rene Abelchawan. But. Um, but yeah, there's nothing about it's like doing stand up. Uh, one set does not get you to the next set. Yeah. No, but there are element no, it doesn't guarantee that the next set is going to be good, but it does lay the groundwork. You have skills and craft. Yes, you have experience. Yes. You know you're gaining more experience, but I but to me it seems like one of your superpowers is, you know, working with someone and like kind of opening up their skull and getting them to be the most them that they are. Yes, I think that's which true. which is a real, you know, like yeah. the with with the big sick, there was an incredible amount of humanity yeah. in their in their relationship and you know with crashing it's how can Pete be the most Pete yeah. or with any yeah. of these other things and so you obviously under you obviously understand how to get people to be the best them. Yeah. So how how do you do? And obviously these are of course the most talented people, like some of the most talented yeah. people in business. But how 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 do you do that? And is yeah. that something that you learned from Gary? I think that's all from Gary because my first experience in storytelling was watching Gary do Larry Sanders, and Larry Sanders was uh, you know a part of Gary, not all of Gary, but a part of Gary. And Gary thought, you know. All that matters is the truth and, you know, compassion. So if, you know, if I'm talking to Kamale and Emily for three years about their story, I guess in some way we're just peeling the onion to get rid of all of the artifice and bullshit to get to Kamale sitting next to Emily unconscious in a hospital. And at some point he just takes her hand and puts the thumb on the phone to unlock it. <laughs> <laughs> and you go, yeah, I, I feel all the emotion of his concern and his love and a very human, real, bizarre thing he needs to do because he needs to get into her phone, which is a huge laugh at a moment yeah. that's really intense, that that's the work. Is how can we get to these magical moments? And we only can by having years of conversations about, well, you know, what was the truth of that? How did you feel? How did you feel meeting her parents? What... Why Why didn't you want to marry her before she was in a coma? What was holding you back? And, <laughs> and it's these very raw, serious conversations that lays all the groundwork for comedy. Okay, now what's funny about 
being half in a relationship. Right. What's funny about going on dates with women that you don't plan on uh, uh, getting serious with to please your parents. Right. You know, what's funny about parents trying to entertain women so they'll marry you. <laughs> yeah. but, but, but the truth is always what makes it funny, not, not even the attempt at funny. You know what I mean? It's like there's a great scene where like Bo Burnham and A.D. Bryant are going to see his one-man show, and it's terrible. <laughs> and it is your friends having to lie to you and tell you it's pretty good. Right. Yeah. And so that is the truth. That is what – if I did a one-man show and it was terrible, most people would be like, oh, yeah, there's some good stuff in there. Yeah. And so in every moment, we're putting it uh, through that machine of of truth. And then Gary's thing was if you do that – the comedy's right there. The funny is just right there. Just worry about the truth, and then it'll be hilarious. It's funny, just you know, uh, you know, Camille screaming at the fast food place that he wants three pieces of cheese on a hamburger or four pieces of cheese. You know, it's heartbreaking. It's both hysterical because he's lost it. He's not performing it like he's doing comedy, right? But just this poor kid. Not knowing how to handle, he doesn't even know why this guy's mad, yeah. and he's just screaming, you know, "Fuck me in the look me in the eye when you fuck me" or whatever he says. <laughs> I mean, on the page, it's not comedic, but like we're so yeah. with him, we know where his heart is. So when he snaps, and and it's the magic of performance and Kamel and mm-hmm. and his his great work that he he can get that laugh, and simultaneously, it's a hundred percent credible. And funny and heartbreaking simultaneously. Yeah, earned. Do you think Gary would have gotten to a point where he would have felt like, you know, I don't know if I really need to perform anymore. I, I would he have would he have achieved some sort of last level yeah. of enlightenment and just yeah. realized like I don't, I literally don't need anything anymore, and essentially just like mm-hmm. walked off into a desert. Yeah, I don't know because in the last few years of his life, you know, he had been sick. And that stopped him from performing. He, he had been writing jokes that were really funny. And he was trying to reinvent stand-up. He hadn't figured out how to do it. He was really into silences. He was into awkward moments. And, and he, he, But he wasn't sure. He just knew that people were afraid of silence. And he liked to create it to, to just see what would happen. And, how, and he, he, was, he was interested in how it made people felt, feel, like to just tell a joke and then wait too long to tell the next one and not even to make you laugh just to go why are we all so uncomfortable being together right yeah uh and he had written a lot of things in his journal about trying to appreciate that his comedy was a gift from god and that his comedy was there to make people happy and that he shouldn't uh not appreciate that he has this gift there's one thing in the documentary where there's a note where he says, Eric Idle said, it's not, I'm paraphrasing, it's not enough to just go through all this pain and all these struggles. You have to tell people. You have to tell people what happened. And so I think he was getting his head around that. And I think he did it with Jerry on Comedians in Cars. I mean, that's, you know, that's very near the end of the movie is yeah. he's telling Jerry, you know, I, I was in the hospital. I had surgery. I went to... Uh, Get a CAT scan, and the guy said he was so happy I wasn't dead. He thought maybe I was dead. <laughs> and he's so funny telling that story. He's like, "Oh, it's so great that you're not dead." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you what? What was your what was your last conversation with Gary? 
I'd been talking to him a lot in the last month because he wanted the Larry Sanders show to be available for people to see. And it had been sold off in different seasons. Oh, I remember this. Yeah, it was like yeah. trying to pull it all back together yeah. was a huge ordeal. Like Crackle had a season and someone else yeah. had a season. So he was trying to to get HBO to basically buy it from everyone and put it on a streaming service. And I said to him, where, where do you want it to be? Do you want to make money off of it? Do you just want it to be easy to access? And he said, yeah, I just want people to be able to see it. I don't care about the money. And uh, and we were having a lot of talks about how to pressure people to make that happen. Right. Uh, and and then and then he, he literally got a call and found out that it happened and then died like an hour later. Oh Holy shit. And I don't feel like those things are connected. Although, who knows? I mean, people... Some people believe in things like that. Um, uh, he had a blood clot in his leg that I think had moved up into his heart and caused a heart attack. But that was very important to him, the idea that this work that that was, you know, I think what the achievement he was most proud of would be easy to see and not forgotten. Yeah, but even – but in, 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 in just all, all those years' worth of journals, you must feel like – Oh, there's still like 50 more episodes of a story to tell with yeah. everything that's in there. I mean, how are you, you know, how are you kind of, uh, how are you selecting and editing to, to make this, you know, a much shorter arc to what is yeah. probably a, a much longer? Well, I, I started editing and I thought, it would, you know, oh, it could be a little over two hours. <laughs> and then at some point I could tell I was not timing out that way. <laughs> and I called Richard Plepler, the head of HBO, and I said... I think this is more like the Bob Dylan documentary or the Eagles documentary, and I think Gary's worth it. There's never been a comedian who's been given the, the right amount of time to tell a story like this. And Gary was around in the '60s and the '70s and the '80s and the '90s, and I mean, and on and on. Like, there's a lot of ground to cover. And he said, "You know, we love Gary, and you should do whatever you want to do, whatever it is. Just send it to us, and if it's good, we're ready to go." And no one ever gives you that kind of. Right. Freedom. He told me later he was a little nervous, but <laughs> but, but he did uh, give me that freedom. And so when I edited, I didn't think about time. I mean, if it went five hours, I might have said that's fine. Uh, I just thought the the movie's like a, a mystery. Who was Gary? Why was he like that? He was so sweet and funny, but also so in his head and neurotic and troubled. And what was that? Where did it come from? So the movie is structured. Uh, like the slow reveal of of his of his core, right? Here's here's who he is, and uh, and also we didn't rush. You know, you see movies about musicians, and they they show fifteen seconds of all you need is love. Or they, <laughs> that really always bothered me. So I thought, all right, in, in order to show how good the Larry Sanders show is, I'm going to show a couple of scenes, the whole scene. I'm going to show uh, Jim Carrey's. A song, the entire song. I'm going to show half of his Tonight Show set. So we're not rushing through it. That's what I like about it is it, it feels like the pace life moves in more than trying to jack it all into yeah. a, a short amount of time. Yeah, and I also feel like it's important for people to see where things come from in the sense that we we all get very insulated where we think like oh our generation really figured it out like we're yeah. edgy we're smart 
And then when you start going back and you discover like, oh, uh, Steve Allen was doing what? Or like, <laughs> yeah. so, oh, they were already, oh, shit. Oh, people yeah. were, oh, this is, we're not, yeah. we're not special. We're just, oh, we, yeah. we have inherited. And it's interesting to see, you know, where that comes from. Because, it, I mean, it's essentially like finding your own specific subcultural family tree. Yeah. Where you go, oh, I got, oh, okay, so... I was kind of emulating this person, but that person was actually emulating this person who was yeah. emulating these two people. And it's really, really helpful. And it also gets you out of your head a little bit. Yeah. and makes you realize, like, oh, we're all just part of a thing. Sure. Yeah, and there's going to be another group. Yeah. Well, that's the point, is that we are all connected. And when you read about all these ideas, you could say we're connected. Like, you know how there are people who say, like, all time is happening simultaneously. Right. Or, you know, there's all these ideas that kind of make you want to pass out. But... <laughs> but you do feel the connection uh, between people and, uh, you know, like, like, listen to Richard Pryor now. If you put on a Richard Pryor record, you will go, oh, everything that we talk about in comedy, he was doing then and better. It's still way better than everyone right, right now. Yeah. Right. You know, so it was like, oh, look at all these groundbreaking people. Yeah, put that record on. You'll just sit there breathless at how honest that guy is being. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> at a time when... And that, and that that really did redefine the comedy of that of that era when you had people before who were um you know these are jokes or these yeah. are and here he is like you know doing yeah. the kinds of things that comics do today which is very honest yeah. storytelling yeah. about horrible things that happened sure. that he somehow makes hilarious because he's not Again, a lot of these things are not things that the audience is naturally going to relate to. Like, most yeah. people have not set themselves on fire. Yes. So, yeah. you know, like, how do you, <laughs> how do you make that? How but do he's you... also talking about just pain. Yeah. yeah. Just pain. Just, like, growing up in a, in a whorehouse and watching your family, uh, you know, uh, behave in ways that no one should have to witness. And you're getting abused. And then he... Like Gary, just you know, took that pain and and tried to turn it into joy. Right. And and, and there's so many stories like that that are just you know how there's always so many stories about celebrities who didn't know that their mom was really their sister. You okay. know, there's a lot of those stories of like their sis, their mom pretended to be their sister. Oh, in the, old, in the old, in the old timey days, yeah. 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 And like Nicholson is like that. There's all sorts of stories like that, and it turned them into artists somehow. These these strange uh, wounds that they have as as kids. I'm always fascinated by that. Just how how some people they, they just turn that whole thing. And it's a positive. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it is. Like you said in the beginning, it's a coping mechanism and it's defense mechanism. Yeah. And, it, and it, as, as horrible as these things can be, you know, they were unfortunately necessary for yeah. these artists to bring this amazing storytelling yeah. to the world so that other people could derive joy or not feel so out of place or, or yeah. whatever. They develop some sort of sensitivity and empathy that not everybody has. They just notice things and they care about people because they've suffered so much that they see the pain and the struggle in in other people. I, I always connect it to songwriting. You feel that with the, the great songwriters that they just – they're feeling something. Like Kurt Cobain, he's feeling something right. that most people aren't as tuned into. And by expressing it, other people are like, oh, my God, I feel that. I feel way. that yeah. too. Yeah. I, I, I must have told you this the last time you were on, but – the I only met Gary a couple of times, and they and I and I think 
every time I met him, it was weird in some way. Yeah. Uh, but the last time I met him was at uh, Sarah Silverman has a, a party every year, and he was at it. Mm-hmm. And someone introduced us, and uh, they go, oh, this is Chris. And he was like, oh, yeah, what do you do? And they go, oh, we host at midnight. It's like a comedy show on comedy. And he just goes, I got it. And then, like, walked away. And I was like, but I, did I? And I couldn't tell if he was fucking with me or if yeah, he just yeah. didn't care or what the... Yeah. I did not know what to... And I still don't know what there's, to make. I was like... There's no way to know. You'll I, never know. I wanted yeah. to say, like, you asked. I don't know. I wasn't trying to... But someone else said it. Someone else, well, no, he, you know, they, they said, I'm sorry, they said he doesn't have anything, like, what do you do? And I go, oh, I'm a stand-up, and I host the show, we're comedians, he goes, I got it. So it actually was me <laughs> explaining, and he shot me down and walked away, and I, I just didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, yeah. I was 23 or 24, uh, and he was at, he was seeing some friend's kid's band, and I happened Ooh. to be at the club, and I saw him, and I, I freaked out, and I you know, went up to him, and I was like, uh, Mr. Shanley, I'm a really huge fan of yours. He's like, oh, that's great. Well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a comic. I just started a couple years ago. He's like, well, that's so nice, and I'm so sorry for you. <laughs> and, I think he also yeah. just got uncomfortable. Yeah. He just got uncomfortable meeting people. You know, like it doesn't mean anything other than Gary on that night might have just felt weird in the space. And, yeah. uh, and it's hard to... You know, on another night, he might have just like chatted with you for hours. It's, it seemed nice. He asked if I wanted a picture. Then someone was nearby with the camera, shot the picture. It was like it was very pleasant, but it was a very it was loud, you know. So it wasn't. And that's probably what the documentary yeah. is about. It's like what was that? And in fact, that's what we talk about in the, in in the documentary. Is people go, what's 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 up with Gary? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and so in a night like that, you go, I don't know. He was having health problems. He was who knows not sure what he was doing with his life. Maybe in that moment, seeing some bright eyed guy who's doing. <laughs> Gray just fucking irritated him. (laughs) (laughs) If you walked up to him and said, like, I've never been in more pain, he might have talked to you for hours. Uh, But you don't know. And that's part of it is that he he was struggling. And and what I like about the documentary is it's not saying he was the greatest guy. It's saying he had a goal to be kinder and to evolve – and he got part of the way there, like everybody. We all get part of the way there. No, no one's perfect. And even the idea of of perfect is, and and that's you know this this subtle art of not giving a fuck has an interesting message to it, where it's um, you know when you say like I'm gonna do this, or I'm going to be better, or I'm going to be thinner, or I'm going to be this. You're automatically devaluing yourself in the present, and you're going, I am shit now. And you're not living a good present life because you're saying, someday I will achieve. And the truth of the matter is, and this again goes back to what we were talking about, is that when you do achieve that thing, it doesn't mean you're fixed Exactly. It's yeah. just That's a painful. thing you think is gonna is gonna fix you. That's what's so great about the Jim and Andy documentary. Yeah, is because uh, have you seen that yet? No, I haven't seen. You know, it's all about Jim staying in character the whole time he shot the Andy Kaufman movie. Right. But he talked a lot about being happier, pretending to be Andy Kaufman because in a way it allowed him to drop all of his problems, and he got to experience what life would be like as a different person with a different way of living. And he enjoyed it. And then he had to go back to himself, and he found that to be really painful to return, not to the life of Jim, but to the emotional instincts of Jim and how he interprets the world where Andy might just not care and be silly and wild and not didn't worry if you were happy or unhappy around him at times. And, and that, that there was something blissful about dropping 
your own history, your own wounds, your own tendencies, and it's it's an amazing documentary. Yeah, I, it's on I Netflix. It. It's yeah, it's one of those, it's a one of those documentaries too. It's like really funny at times, but also kind of a bummer yeah. at times. And how you kind of like don't like Jim Carrey throughout a lot of parts of it, where you yeah. like you know, because he's kind of just being an ass a lot of the time. But well, yeah, 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 go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and it's very similar to to Gary's journey in that you know Jim talks about being a kid and and, and what was happening in his family, you know, that made him become funny because his dad lost his job and they were homeless and he tried to entertain them. So he was, you know, built to be super turbocharged to entertain. Right. And then at some point after a lot of success, he realized, oh, this doesn't actually heal my wounds. I don't feel better. Right. Even though I've, I'm the ultimate example of success, but that success has actually nothing to do with me being able to be happy and feel good and, you know, the, the Bruce Almighty grosses actually don't even yeah. touch what's really happening inside of me. Well, yeah, because at a certain point, that's just incomprehensible information yeah. that doesn't – that you can't do anything with. Yeah. That doesn't help – you know, and I always – I had always – you know, uh, again, uh, talking about losing comics, but when Robin Williams died and you would just hear these stories about that he was unhappy and he was ill and not feeling yeah, well yeah. And, and then just – and, and then being so sad for so long that he was unable to connect to how many people's lives he made better, how much joy he brought to yeah. other people's lives. And at the core of it is, you know – and does that – does does, is that necessary? Is that is is the is the epicenter of it supposed to be miserable so that millions of other people can <laughs> yeah. be happy? Is that to be a harder? Is that the hero's journey or the sacrifice? Yeah. You know, is it is it you know David Banner walking off to sad music at the end of yeah. every episode and just can't have joy for himself? Because, yeah. But he's but he's helping other people, so it's okay. I, and that's what's fun in the documentary is that Gary. Talks to Seinfeld a lot, and you see them in different eras having these conversations, and you realize, well, Jerry is happy. (laughs) You know, Jerry isn't doesn't he? He's just uh, psychologically built differently than Gary. He loved Gary; they had similar, you know, journeys earlier in their careers. But he is happy. Yeah, there's proof you could be happy. It's Jerry. You could call him. He's yeah. he, he's yeah. happy right now. He has his his way of dealing with problems, and he's a normal human being. I'm sure he has you know pain here and there, but he's not ruminating right in the way that Gary did. And I'm sure there's you know I'm sure there's plenty of people who are happy in the way most people are. Will Ferrell is a very I mean, together I, happy person outside of like mental illness or you know obviously things that people can't necessarily control. I do feel like the the drama is an addiction, and I do feel like it's a, a like a superstitious. Oh, you know, I was dramatic the last time, and this thing worked out, so now this is part of my process, and I would yeah. like to disprove that yeah. as an idea, so that people don't feel like they have to make that part of their ritual. That sure. that you can just you get addicted to whatever you do, like they say. Uh, you know, they, 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 I read a lot of these books about like they're like self help books, but they apply to quantum physics. And this one book by this guy Joe Dispenza, uh, he talks about you know if you're happy all the time, your cells think they're supposed to be happy, mm-hmm. and then if you're unhappy, it tries to get you back to happy. And if you're unhappy all the time, it's like your cells 
you, the chemicals of unhappiness. They, you know, if you get happy, they want to bring you back to unhappiness. It's like you're yeah. there's a, there's like a a you know a quantum physics reason why you're in a certain mood. Well, maybe you're happy and unhappy simultaneously. Well, that's until... okay. Can you let go? Of all of it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you let go of, of all of it? Uh, and just accept. Uh, I think it's called breaking the habit of being yourself. Oh, that sounds fantastic. And his theory is that if you meditated every day about how you wanted to feel and you imagined it, because he says that your brain doesn't know the difference between like something you made up and reality. So if you just sit for half an hour and pretend to be happy and think happy thoughts... That you can program your brain to think that's like the de facto setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, because your brain doesn't know that that's not what it is. Right. And that you, and, and I have a, a business manager. He's always like, if I say, how you doing? He's like, having a great day. <laughs> and, and, and recently I realized, like, yeah, he's happy because he's made this choice. You know, you could choose happiness. Right. But also that book is saying that chemically – your body becomes addicted and wants to be in the space that you're generally in. Right. Yeah, which I really like the idea because we think of ourselves as a unified... We think of ours. I think most people, we think of ourselves as a just this... We're us. We're a unified thing. I am a unified thing as opposed to a collection of millions of microorganisms yes. that are essentially... I think I did... Oh, it was uh, Alan Alda was just... We talked about this, this idea because he was fascinated by yeah. the idea of like... You know, there are different there are different microbes I in hate your hands. I hate this talk. This is, like, this is the definition of everything I hate. Like, there's a million microbes that live on your arm. Like, I I, 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 I want to put a bullet in my head. They're piloting you. Yeah. They're piloting you, though. Ultimately, like they are just they are just keeping this organized meat bag walking yeah. in the direction that they need it to yeah. be walking. Your in. gut. Uh, what is all oh, your gut uh, microbes? Yeah, you need, your, you know, your gut flora. Yeah, the gut flora. I don't want to hear that I have a brain in my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's millions of brains. Don't I worry generally about it. hate yeah. science. I, hate science. <laughs> yeah. I had a conversation with Seinfeld about this once. He said, like, if he looks at a picture from space, like if he's writing at Seinfeld, he would put a picture from the Hubble telescope on the fridge, and that made him feel better. Yeah. Like, thinking he's small makes him feel better. And I said, no, thinking I'm the king of the universe makes me feel better. I, when I think I'm nothing, I'm just in a wide-eyed existential funk and, or terror. But that's what I'm trying to flip. Right, that's how I flip that. Well, yeah, yeah. and that's yeah, the, the want of something bigger than like not just not being anybody is yes. uh, that I'm just I get drenched in shame and I don't yeah. want it. Even if I have like a good set and stand up, yeah. I walk off probably more bummed out than yeah. if I had a shitty set. Well, I go, I'm a, who was who am I to want this attention? Exactly. Yeah, but I, but I can tell you. So for a, a couple of different things, the idea of feeling small is nice because. Then it, it seems like, well, then the universe is never conspiring against me because I'm not important enough. Like, yeah. the universe has more important things. So if things don't go well, it's not because the universe hates me. Yeah. It's just because of either it accidentally didn't go well or were there maybe micro choices yeah. that I made because I feel like I you know deserve a certain yeah. thing or whatever to, to manifest this. But... You know, I, I'm I'm not I've obviously been sober a long time, but I'm not an AA person. But a lot of my friends who are in AA, I really have grown in 15 years of it to respect the idea of being insignificant because yeah. it, it takes a lot of control off your plate. Because if you're insignificant, it's like, oh, yeah. I can't control everything. Yes, and so I don't even need to bother trying because I'm not important enough to control everything. So insignificance from that standpoint is very refreshing to yeah. me as opposed to. Ugh, I gotta hold yeah. it all together, yeah. you know. It's like yeah. I gotta control everything. That's that's what I'm working on. That's what you'll get if you 
by my master class. <laughs> <laughs> I, amazing that you but would turn that into a plug. This could be this miserable. <laughs> Then <laughs> <laughs> your master class is available now. I think you can do a pre-order, and it comes out in the next week or. That's fantastic. So, yeah, I worked hard on it. And I was oddly lucid while recording it. Like I thought, if I was nineteen, twenty years old, or just interested in in writing or directing or stand up, this it would help. It'd well, help. and I and I think you have an excellent point of view on it because you know you were the person that interviewed comedians yes. when you were a kid, yeah. so you know. You you also have the curiosity side mm. and the you remember what it was like to be a, a Padawan apprentice exactly so yeah. you know as opposed to well I know everything and here's how it goes yeah there was certain, there was always certain very simple uh, ideas that helped me a ton some of it was just like there's a section where I just say don't be an asshole <laughs> like, like a lot of show businesses that people want you in the room. And people don't want you to criticize and not have the fix. Right. Like if you're, you can't be the critical person that doesn't go, but you know what you could do. Because when you're in a writer's room, the person that just says that's bad and doesn't help is the person that gets fired. Yeah. yeah. And so simple things like that uh, are helpful. That is, th- those are two amazing pieces of advice. And I think some that people actually forget is like, yeah, just don't. If you're just not an asshole, you're, you're already like that is a big win in your corner because yeah. – People will want to work with you because there are plenty of assholes. And then, you know, my manager Alex always says, like, just be a problem solution guy. Rather than saying, uh, this is dumb, say, well, what if we did this? Or I could make this work better if if we could do it this way as opposed to, you know, slashing and burning. Be constructive. Yeah. yeah, you know, don't be a room killer. That's what they always say it in yeah. at sitcoms. Like, oh, that that guy's a room killer. The whole room just stops dead because we all just hate him so much. <laughs> oh yeah, there's there's always one guy in a room that has to whenever you know. The, and this is terrible because it makes people afraid to pitch jokes. One guy will just go, Mah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, maybe don't uh, make yeah. people uncomfortable to, yeah. pit, to pitch jokes. That He's the stand-up at the back of the room going, ah. <laughs> That's the worst noise. That's the worst. Ah. <laughs> I get it. Oh, okay, well, thanks. Uh, yeah. Sorry about that. So as we're wrapping this down, um, any, any sort of grand message that you feel that you want to impart any 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 what was a particular favorite chunk of wisdom from Gary that you uh, well I think uh, you know at the end of the documentary there's this weird moment where I'm recording a Skype podcast with this uh, Buddhist guru Ram Das and Gary comes over in the middle of it I asked him I said you know come over if you want to talk to Ram Das and Ram Das says uh, you know you're supposed to live in your heart, not in your head. He's like, your head is where all the trouble is. Your heart, he goes, that's where all the, the good stuff is. So, so to me, it's as simple as that. Like, can we do that? Can we live in our heart and not our head? And, and, and he said, it's, you know, it's all about loving awareness. You know, can you be aware and not reactive and loving? So I like that the documentary, it lands on Gary looking like he's eight years old as he listens and he's very peaceful as he listens. And this guru says, "No, this this is all life is. It's just, it's just you know being in your heart." And he also says to Gary, uh, "Comedy, you know, comedy is very productive in spiritual work. It gets you there." Yeah. And I, I thought that was a special. So, this is obviously an impossible question to answer, but just you know, just just take an educated guess. So so this time when Gary is 
you know, he's led to the light mm-hmm. for the second time in yes. his life. And maybe the voice says to him, you know, uh, were you happy being Gary yeah. Shandling? Do you think he would have said yes? I think so. I do think so. When I think about the times I spent with Gary, I think we, we laughed our asses off. We, we, I, I think he certainly tried to create a world that he felt safe in. And a lot of people say, oh, but he wasn't married. He didn't have kids. But I think for him, for some reason, he liked knowing he had his independence and his privacy. But so much of time with Gary was just pissing your pants laughing. He was so funny. And he, you know, he had problems. He had health problems also. The same ones that everybody has. But I think there was a ton of cracking up in there. There was a lot of good dick jokes. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of moments of inspiration where he'd say something funny and, and be so proud that he thought of it. And you know, He wrote a joke for the, for the Oscars for Chris Rock the last time he hosted the Oscars. And he was just so happy that he you know, called Chris and they kicked jokes around and he, and he got one in. So I, I do think he he, he had a lot of uh, joy in his life. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming back, Judd. And uh, the, the, the documentary, what did the, when is it? The 26th yeah. and 27th. Yes. And right. then it'll stream on uh, all the HBO uh, streaming services. And then uh, Love is on Netflix and Crashing is on HBO. Yeah. New season of Love is by far the best one yet. So I Thank highly you. recommend anyone listening that they haven't watched it yet. Check it out. Fantastic. Right. Thanks, Judd. Thanks, Jonah. Yeah. Nice to see you. Nice to see you as Thanks well. for making some time in your Mystery Science Theater world to, for the old podcast. For you, some things. Thank you. Enjoy your burrito. <laughs> ID 10 scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. Nancy's love story could have been ripped right out of the pages of one of her own novels. She was a romance mystery writer who happens to be married to a chef. But... This story didn't end with a happily ever after. When I stepped into the kitchen, I could see that Chef Brophy was on the ground, and I heard somebody say, call 911. As writers, we'd written our share of murder mysteries. So when suspicion turned to Dan's wife, Nancy, we weren't that surprised. The first person they look at would be the spouse. We understand that's usually the way they do it. But we began to wonder... Had Nancy gotten so wrapped up in her own novels... There are murders in all of the books. ...that she was playing them out in real life? You can listen to Happily Never After, Dan and Nancy, early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. 